This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The business plot, part three. A bad penny. According to the speech, which was very well written and finely polished, the American Legion needed to pass a resolution calling on President Roosevelt to return to the gold standard. If he didn't, then when the bonuses were finally distributed to veterans, all they would get was worthless rubber money, as it was called, since it wasn't backed by a fixed valuable asset. But it seemed obvious to Smedley Butler that, like so many other ways he had seen soldiers used and abused, this was just a front for big business interests. As far as he could tell from reading the papers and talking with people he knew, the only people concerned about leaving the gold standard were conservative financiers. The average soldier who was struggling to get by didn't care at all what kind of money they got. They had families to feed. If it bought a loaf of bread and a cut of meat, what difference did it make if there was a gold bar in a vault somewhere? A few months after the two American Legion veterans had come to his home to ask him to speak at the convention, Butler was giving a speech to a group of veterans in Newark, New Jersey, when who else but Jerry Maguire showed up unannounced at his hotel room. He wanted to know how much progress Butler had made in rounding up a few hundred men to storm the convention next month, which was pretty presumptuous since he hadn't agreed to do any such thing. This time, Smedley demanded to know who was really behind this whole scheme. The speech was far too well-written to have been Jerry Maguire's work. So, Maguire told him that nine very wealthy men were financing the operation, one of whom was his boss, Colonel Grayson Murphy. He was a legionnaire and a powerful Wall Street financier who ran a brokerage firm. Murphy had been one of the primary backers who helped establish the American Legion, and had given $125,000 to the organization in 1919. He also had financial interests in Goodyear Tire, Bethlehem Steel, Anaconda Copper, and was senior vice president of Guarantee Trust, a J.P. Morgan bank. He had also been decorated by Mussolini himself, according to McGuire. Why he thought this would impress Smedley Butler, who knows. It was then that Butler decided that he needed to strong-arm him into giving up more information. He told the man that he wasn't going to Chicago because he didn't believe McGuire actually had any of this money or any of these backers at all. In response, McGuire pulled out his wallet and, right there on the hotel bed, threw down a stack of $18,000 bills. For expenses, he told him. Furious and insulted by what seemed to be a bribe, Butler told him he didn't want any of his money. He said, Somebody is using you. You are a wounded man. You are a blue jacket. I want to know the fellows who are using you. I am not going to talk to you anymore. You are only an agent. I want some of the principals. In response, McGuire named another financial backer, Robert Sterling Clark, who had actually served under Butler during the Boxer Rebellion, where he had been known as the Millionaire Lieutenant. He was also a Wall Street broker and an heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune. His aunt and uncle had left him $10 million. Butler remembered the guy. 
a strange and, as he put it, batty fellow who did all sorts of extravagant things and went around exploring all over China, eventually writing a book about it. McGuire said he would contact Clark and convince him to set up a meeting. Butler felt like he was finally getting somewhere in terms of uncovering the plot, but he needed more concrete evidence if he was going to do anything about it. So, wanting to create a paper trail and keep him on the hook, he wrote to McGuire a few days later to tell him that he had thought about the proposal, that it was a great idea, and that he could totally get a hundred legionnaires together so long as he had a proper invitation to the convention. And he wanted proof that the men's expenses would be taken care of. Ultimately, Butler wanted to know exactly how much money these people really had and who was giving it to them, and thus how much of an actual threat this ploy might be. McGuire wrote back and agreed to set up a meeting between Butler and the millionaire lieutenant Robert Sterling Clark. A week later, the two men had lunch at Butler's home in Pennsylvania. They reminisced about their time serving in the Marines in China before getting down to the business of the Legion Convention. Clark told him all about the travel arrangements, which included a private rail car and a fancy suite at a hotel in Chicago, as well as the plan for getting Butler a chance to give the gold standard speech before the convention. Gather the men, get them to Chicago, they'll all cheer and demand a speech, you know the rest. Butler then explained his misgivings to Clark, that the speech was too well-written to have been McGuire's work, anyone could see that, and that it was a big business speech, and not at all in the interests of veterans. Clark went silent for a moment, and then he finally spoke frankly. That speech cost a lot of money, he told Butler. He said it was written by John W. Davis, who had been the Democratic candidate for president in 1924 and was now chief counsel for J.P. Morgan and Company. He implied that he had paid for the speech himself, saying, We want the soldier's bonus paid in gold. We do not want the soldier to have rubber money or paper money. We want the gold. That is the reason for this speech. But then, maybe because he wanted to cut to the chase and reveal his true intentions, maybe because he thought it would be more convincing, he told Butler, I have got $30 million, and I don't want to lose it. I am willing to spend half of the $30 million to save the other half. Why, Butler asked, would the president be brought around on the gold standard just because the American Legion passed a resolution? Well, Clark replied, Roosevelt himself was from the wealthy elite class. All of his peers wanted a return to gold, and he would fall in line one way or another. He told him, You know the president is weak. He will come right along with us. He was born in this class, he was raised in this class, and he will come back. Disgusted, Butler told Clark that he would have nothing to do with the scheme. Clark then tried to convince him further, this time sort of berating him, making promises that his mortgage could be taken care of, and that there were other financial perks that came along with this type of relationship. When this didn't work, he tried to goad Butler into agreeing by telling him that he wasn't the only general on their dance card. See, while Clark and his group wanted Butler, the Morgan crowd thought he was too radical, too much on the side of the little guy, and they wanted Douglas MacArthur to lead the movement. Infuriated by yet another bribe and the attempt to make him jealous of MacArthur, Butler lost his patience. 
He told Clark that he had better go ahead and get MacArthur to do it then. He led Clark into his living room, where he kept all of the flags, plaques, scrolls, banners, and all the other decorations he'd been given over his years in service. On both ends of the hall were two canopies attached to tall poles, the blessings umbrellas given to Butler by the people of China, who loved him as one of their own. He told Clark to take a good look and to inspect every item in the room, all the tokens of appreciation and esteem that he'd been given by the poor and humble people of the world. Those were his people, and maybe if Clark looked long enough, he would realize his mistake in trying to bribe and bully Smedley Darlington Butler. Finally getting the picture, Clark meekly asked if he could please make a phone call to Jerry Maguire in Chicago. He listened in as Clark told Maguire that General Butler would not be coming to the convention for, as he put it, excellent reasons, and that Maguire had plenty of money to get the resolution passed on his own, $45,000. He then told Maguire that he should send those telegrams. Clark then apologized to Butler for his behavior, and they shared some polite conversation about their service in the Boxer Rebellion until it was time to drive him back to the train station. After, he wasn't quite sure how to feel about the whole thing. On one hand, it was a relief to be rid of Maguire and Clark and the whole mess. By now, he must have made it more than clear that he couldn't be bought and he wouldn't be bullied. But on the other, this meant that he'd never have a chance to uncover their true intentions, to figure out who was behind the plot and what they really wanted to use the veterans for. A few days later, After the Legion had met, Butler read in the papers that the convention had been flooded with telegrams, all of them urging the delegates to approve a resolution to endorse the gold standard. The resolution was proposed and passed. The next time Butler saw McGuire was when he stopped by just after the convention, and he was absolutely giddy about the passage of the Gold Standard Resolution. They hadn't endorsed the veterans bonus, Butler pointed out. But McGuire insisted that there was no point in issuing a bonus until they had sound currency to give out. Shortly after that, McGuire came to his home again, this time to tell him that a veterans group in Boston had arranged a dinner in his honor. Butler would be transported in a private car and paid $1,000 to give a speech. Smedley Butler had never been paid $1,000 to give a speech. What kind of speech? A speech in favor of the gold standard, of course. But no, he could not be bought for $1,000, and why McGuire didn't realize that already is anybody's guess. Again, he ran into McGuire, whom Butler said kept turning up like a bad penny, while he was going to make a campaign speech for a former Marine who was running for office. This time, he wanted to accompany Butler on his upcoming speaking tour for the VFW. He wanted to help him recruit veterans for what he called a great big super organization to maintain our democracy. Given what he already knew about McGuire's associations, he doubted very much that any veterans organization backed by powerful financiers would have democracy at the front of its agenda. Frustrated, McGuire pivoted. If Butler was willing to insert just a small reference to returning to the gold standard, 
his backers would pay him $750 per speech. The VFW paid only $250. Absolutely not, Butler told him. Get it through your head. I am not a man who will be bought, and I do not care about the gold standard. And after all, that was why the veterans trusted and respected him so much. He had a long reputation of being stubbornly principled. After the request to join the VFW tour, Smedley Butler didn't hear from Jerry Maguire for a while. He had left for Europe that December on some errand for his bosses. In the meantime, things were heating up in the United States, especially as moneyed interests grew more and more desperate to derail the New Deal. When FDR gave a speech promising to end the use of armed forces to protect business interests in Latin America, Butler was thrilled. The financier class was not. Then Roosevelt went on to hamstring stock speculation, regulate communications industries, stop foreclosures on farms, and force business to allow their employees to unionize and collectively bargain. One official with the DuPont Company wrote to the former chairman of the Democratic Party, John Raskob, complaining that five black workers at their South Carolina home, quote, refused to work this spring, saying they had easy jobs with the government. A cook on my houseboat at Fort Myers quit because the government was paying him a dollar an hour as a painter. In July of 1934, Fortune magazine released an entire edition that praised Italian fascism. Right-wing papers and radio shows called FDR's program The Jew Deal. The next month, Hitler pronounced himself Führer and sole executive of Germany. Two weeks later, on August 22, 1934, Smedley Butler got another call from Jerry Maguire. He had something of the utmost importance to talk with him about. Butler agreed to meet him in Philadelphia, where, in a hotel lobby, Maguire proposed his latest plan. His backers had sent him to Europe to study the role that veterans' organizations were playing in propping up new governments, and whether any of it would be relevant to American politics. The black shirts and the brown shirts wouldn't work here, Maguire believed. The vets wouldn't go for it, they were too hard-lined. But he had found something in France that he thought might work, a sort of super-organization that unified all of the various French veterans' groups. They had 500,000 active members, and each member was a leader to 10 others, so their strength was as much as 5 million. Worth noting that this seems to be some serious exaggeration on Maguire's part, but that's a whole other can of worms. When Butler later retold this story, he couldn't recall the French name of the organization. But it's almost certain that Maguire was describing the Croix de Feu, or Cross of Fire. Now, France in the interwar period had very complicated politics, especially with regards to fascism, and I'm not going to go into it here, but the Croix de Feu were a far-right-wing, ultra-nationalist, anti-parliamentarian militia movement. And if that sounds like a fascist movement to you, yeah, I agree. But historians have lots of weird, seemingly political debates about interwar French fascism that is just honestly beyond the scope of this series and far beyond the scope of my expertise. What matters for us, and for Smedley Butler, is that what Maguire was describing sounded a whole lot like a fascist militia. 
So what did McGuire and his backers plan to do with a gigantic superorganization of veterans? Well, they were going to support the president. And why would the president, who was very popular among the people, save for some fringe groups and the wealthiest Americans, need 500,000 soldiers ready at hand? McGuire responded that the president was running out of money to finance his new deal, and they were concerned that he would further disrupt the finance system in order to get more funds. The Veterans Army would ensure that that didn't happen. Now, McGuire insisted that this was all in Roosevelt's best interest. It w- was to support him, really. See, the president is overworked and weak. Anybody can see that. And in case you didn't know, FDR was paralyzed from the waist down, and his enemies often used that fact to portray him as weak. So really, what the organization would do is help provide him with an assistant president who could take some of the burden off of his shoulders. They would call it a Secretary of General Affairs. This totally legal and constitutional cabinet member would take on the day-to-day affairs of running the country, and the president would be more of a figurehead. Once Roosevelt was resting comfortably, no longer troubled by, you know, being president and all, they could get the country back on track, back on the gold standard. And how was McGuire and company going to pay for this 500,000-strong militia? Well, he had $3 million now in working funds, and he could easily get $300 million if he needed it. Butler could assemble the men in a year, and their show of force would make for a quick and peaceful transition of government. Feeling like he had the fish back on the line again, Butler asked more about the scheme. McGuire told him that while in Paris, he'd made headquarters at the offices of Morgan and Hodges. Yeah, that Morgan. And again, the Morgan people were suspicious of Butler and his radicalism. But McGuire and his people knew that Butler was the most popular and well-known veteran in the country and the only man who could get the veterans together and lead this operation. The suggestions coming from Morgan's people, Douglas MacArthur and former Legion Commander Hanford McNider, were poor substitutes. MacArthur was wildly unpopular after the attack on the bonus army in D.C., and McNider had come out in opposition to the bonus payments. But, McGuire told him, McNider wasn't off the table. Very soon he was going to reverse his position and come out in favor of the bonus. He then told Butler that the national commander of the VFW, James Van Zandt, would also be approached to lead the organization. Butler asked when this was all going to come out and what the organization would be called. McGuire wasn't sure what it would be called yet, but the press would announce it in two or three weeks. It would be described as a society to maintain the Constitution, and its founders would be some of the richest and most important men in the country, including the governor of New York, Al Smith, who had lost to Hoover in 1928. Despite being a Democrat with pretty humble roots, Al Smith was now a business associate of the DuPonts, which was and continues to be one of the richest families in America. Al Smith had grown more and more conservative since losing the presidency. Still, Butler found it hard to believe that a leading Democrat was plotting to overthrow the Democratic president. But just watch, McGuire told him. In about a month, Smith was going to very publicly break with the Roosevelt administration. A couple of weeks later, 
Newspapers reported on the formation of a new organization called the American Liberty League, striving to combat radicalism, to teach the necessity of respect for the rights of persons and property, and generally to foster free private enterprise. The ALL's treasurer was McGuire's boss, Grayson M.P. Murphy. Robert Sterling Clark was a financial backer, and on the National Executive Committee was John W. Davis, the Morgan attorney who had supposedly written the Gold Standard speech. At the head of the organization were men from DuPont and J.P. Morgan. Al Smith was one of the directors. Two of the organizations associated with the ALL, the Sentinels of the Republic and the Southern Committee to Uphold the Constitution, had well-known fascist tendencies. Then, sure enough, Hanford McNider reversed his position on the bonus and advocated for immediate payment. And shortly after that, Al Smith launched a vicious new attack against President Roosevelt, all right on schedule. It would have been easy to write Jerry Maguire off as a crank based solely on what he said. But the money, the fine clothes and cars, the meeting with Clark, and now the predictions about Al Smith, Hanford McNider, and the American Liberty League? Butler was alarmed. He called the VFW commander Van Zant and warned him that he may soon be approached by some men about heading up a new veterans organization, and that they intended to stage a coup. But now what? He could go straight to Washington to warn some of his contacts there, or even the president himself. But he had no proof, save for a few postcards McGuire had sent from Europe and the reply to his letter telling him he would set up a meeting with Clark. His years of pissing off high-ranking military officials would mean he'd be vilified in the press, written off as a crackpot or a publicity hound. What he needed was someone who could corroborate his story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.